Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from another overcast, wintry day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In this episode, we return to the roots of the podcast and examine some past and present issues pertaining to the abundance of BC salmonid fisheries, focusing on steelhead in particular. Today, we welcome Bob Hooten back to the program. Bob is a retired fisheries scientist who dedicated 37 years of his life to fisheries management in British Columbia, focusing primarily on steelhead conservation. His long career included a 13-year tenure as the head of the fisheries section in Smithers, covering the Skeena region. His final nine years of service were spent at the head of the fish and wildlife section for the Vancouver Island region. Following his retirement, Bob authored two books covering the history of steelhead management in BC. The first was entitled Skeena Steelhead, Unknown Past, Uncertain Future. And the second book was published to complete the saga with specific reference to a dozen of BC's premier steelhead streams entitled Days of River Past. I believe that Bob is working on a third book uh, covering the mighty Thompson River. To this day, Bob continues to spread the wild steelhead conservation gospel to anyone that will listen and actively blogs on his website, steelheadvoices.com. Bob, welcome back to the show, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. Pleasure That's to be here. Excellent, sir. So I, I wanted to start today with a look at the past and, and to put the present state of our fisheries into perspective. Uh, in your book, Days of Rivers Past, you quoted Francis Whitehouse from his 1946 book, where he states, looking to the future of our freshwater sport in the province, it would not be less than truth to state that we've arrived at a parting of ways. Most of the lakes and rivers are slipping badly. Everything is against the fish. These are some very prophetic words. Uh, and in 1946, if they were worried about uh, the impacts of, of our overconsumption or, or declining fisheries. I mean, where does that leave us today? Well, it's, it's just not a happy story. That's all you can say. I mean, uh, you know, so much of the history of fishing in British Columbia is, is yeah, basically less than 100 years old. And in that space of time, we've seen the population of this province grow from, you know, couple hundred thousand perhaps so there's there's five over five million of us now and the majority of that population something like two-thirds of it lives within the freezer basin well if you look at the the sheer weight of, of human impact on the habitats that produce fish from a hundred thousand people versus five million people well guess what you know it's it's all negative there's nothing you can say that's uh, that's positive about that. You know, we're going to sustain ourselves by, you know, industrial and residential development and abstracting water and you know compromising upland habitats, riparian areas, all that kind of stuff. You know, sucking water out of places that fish used to need it. The cumulative impacts of uh, of us, you know. Uh, <laughs> how can anybody be surprised at the outcome in terms of you know the the abundance of fish and wildlife populations around this country. Well, I guess the same could be said for the estuarine environments, uh, which, you know, clearly at one point, uh, Burrard Inlet and, and that all, all that must have been a, a, a remarkable habitat and environment for those young fish to rear in. And, you know, now it's, I would imagine, pretty much uh, devoid of much life. Well, exactly. And, and you know, I, I once again, I don't think people pay attention to that sort of thing. You know, they, I mean, 
today's the first day of the rest of your life sort of thing, you know, nobody looks back, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 years to see what went before them and to try and understand, you know, the size of our footprint and, and uh, what we're doing to uh, the things that we allegedly hold dear. But, you know, you make a good example, you know, there's within my lifetime, you know, there were commercial fisheries going on in Burrard Inlet. That stuff is on the record, you know, they caught everything in Burrard Inlet, you know. Well, it's unthinkable that you would go out there and catch halibut, for example, or that, you know, there would be, you know, enough herring, for example, you know, to have commercial fisheries, that sort of thing, you know, the whole Gulf of Georgia, look at the Fraser Estuary, it's a megaport. You know, we keep alienating more and more fish habitat, basically, to accommodate transshipment and import of resources and all that sort of thing. You know, uh, you know, a, fer a ferry terminal, you know, right on top of it all. The noisiest, you know, most offensive vessels known in British Columbia in terms of the uh, killer whale or the orca impacts. You know, <laughs> we build more ferries all the time than the worst offenders, you know. All these sorts of things, and, and people just don't pay attention. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting, again, from uh, White House's book, uh, in terms of putting into perspective what that historical fishery was like, um, and, and having grown up on the Seymour River, this passage was uh, particularly interesting, where he states that uh, his friend Arthur Milton, uh, who lived on Vancouver's North Shore and, and fished the Seymour and Capilano Rivers religiously, uh, he reports that over 16 years, he never took less than 75 steelhead and his best year was 167. And in my fishing career on the on the, the Seymour River, I've never seen 167 fish taken in that cumulative time period. End of story. Um, you know th that to me was was something really dramatic um, to have seen that level of decline in such a short period of time. No, it's it once again. I mean, people aren't paying attention. You know, they. I mean. Milton caught more fish in a, in a single year than exist in the, you know, probably in the last three or four years combined in, a, in those rivers. You know, the Capilano was a world famous river. I mean, can people wrap their mind around that? That people came from far and wide specifically to fish the Capilano River for steelhead. We built Cleveland Dam and pretty much did that in, you know, and ever since it's been, you know, straight downhill, but, uh, but once again, you know, those are magnificent little rivers, you know, the, the Capilano, the Lynn, the Seymour, you know, all the way up the, the shoreline, all the way to Squamish, you know, I mean, every creek had fish in it. What did we do to Britannia, you know? Sure. Wood fibers, all top end of House Sound, the Squamish, you know, and you dam the Chequamus and divert it and all that sort of thing, you know, it's like log that Dickens out of the headwaters of the Squamish. Well, what did we expect the outcome was going to be? Yeah, well, I, I guess that was the, you know, I uh, spent quite a bit of time professionally up in the Queen Charlottes and, and reading through some of the old accounts. Um, you know, they, it's, it's unfathomable to a guy like you or I that at any time in history, it would be acceptable to yard uh, logs through a stream, particularly if that stream had spawning fish in it. Yet that was a pretty common practice, uh, especially, in, especially in Reynolds Sound, where they had a number of uh, systems that had sockeye. And they would just, you know, it's obviously it was easy to see the fish because they were bright red and they were dragging logs through the streams. I mean, it's just, that's just inconscionable. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, we've got all kinds of examples of that, you know, the leftover scars around Vancouver Island as well. I mean, I, I can recall the first time I ever drove down 
Harris Creek, you know, tributary to the San Juan, which historically was a wonderfully productive river. And, and, and I, as you're driving along, you notice that the other side of the river has been logged, but there's no roads on the other side of the river. So how do they get the logs off that? Well, they just yard them straight across the stream, you know? Well, for goodness sake, yeah. So in, in your uh, second book, The uh, river, Days of Rivers Past, um, you go into some streams with some particular reference and, and firsthand observation uh, of the decline of those systems due to logging practices. And I guess uh, perhaps one that's you know, closest to, to, to home, closest to your heart, would be the Englishman River, um, where you lived on its bank for a number of years. Yeah, I mean, it's just the sweetest little steelhead river you could want to see. And, and you know, I mean, it, it, it had all the makings, you know, it was a nice, easily manageable size, you know, at a decent flow was a little bit too big to wade, you know, at a moderate flow you could get across here and there. It had a nice gradient, you know, a really good substrate, you know, sort of trout par producing kind of substrate, you know, uh, it, there was an angler's trail that went up at a, off an old rudimentary logging road from the first pass of logging in there. I mean, it was just a wonderful place to go, you know, you could walk the entire fishable length of it basically, you know, from the South Fork confluence down, you know, you could spend a very enjoyable day and, and most of the time you would, uh, you would not encounter any amount of traffic out there, maybe the occasional anger, that sort of thing. But, you know, if you didn't catch a fish, there was something seriously wrong. You know, I mean, you, you didn't go there with the expectation of, you know, taking your rod for a walk or your dog or something like that. You went there with the expectation of catching fish. And, you know, on, on decent conditions, you weren't disappointed. It was a wonderful little place, you know. I mean, and we lived there, you know, right on the riverbank with our property line midstream and all that kind of stuff, you know. We got to watch it 24-7 sort of thing, you know. What a beautiful little river that was. Loved it. And so what was the, uh, what was the story there? What was the sort of, uh, uh, the, the conditions which led to its decline? Well, like, you know, most of the streams on Vancouver Island, you know, it, uh, you, you hit a breaking point there somewhere where you're taking too much of the mature canopy off, you know, forest canopy, and especially at the higher elevations and the furthest upstream in the, in the valleys, you know, the, the sensitive rain on snow areas, the steep slopes, all that kind of stuff, you know, and, you get, you know, a couple of feet of snow up there and a warm front moves in and you get an inch or two of rain overnight and you flush everything off those hillsides, you know, on exposed, you know, soil types and road surfaces and drainage structures. And all of a sudden, you know, you're washing the hillsides into the valley bottoms. And, you know, the cumulative downstream impacts just keep getting worse and worse and worse with each succeeding major flood event and each succeeding year. There's a cost to that. We're not producing as many fish as we once did, and uh, we're putting them into a receiving environment in the ocean that's not what it was. Double jeopardy. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, you're, you're burning the candle at both ends at that point. Yeah, and it's been closed, the fishing, all the productive areas that, uh, that I used to walk for years and years and years there. They've been closed to fishing since the mid-1990s, somewhere yeah. around there, you know? So, yeah. I mean, we can't blame anglers. And, and how, you know, what the, the industrial forestry complex would like you to believe that they were, you know, managing to the, the best of the regulations at the time and so forth. 
Um, I personally don't buy that. I mean, I think my firsthand experience in the business, you know, forest managers knew damn well what they were doing. And uh, it was a profit, it was a profit motive. And the province really wasn't um, following up on the, the regulations in terms of fines or penalties for misdeeds. Yeah, no, I, and you're absolutely correct. The, uh, the, if you look at the government structure, never mind the, the companies themselves, but the government, you know, the Ministry of Forests or whatever label you put on the, the government department or ministry that uh, is supposed to be responsible for forest management and all that. You look at the, at the number of employees in, in that ministry versus whatever ministry of the day it is that uh, houses the fish and wildlife people. Well, it's a hundred to one for goodness sake, you know. Once again, what do people think the outcome of that is going to be? You know, the, the poor kids on the block there have no authority, you know. And uh, if you drew a line from about Campbell River down to Port Renfrew across Vancouver Island, everything south of that line is what they call the E&N Belt, the Esquimalt and Nanaimo Railway Belt. The original land grant, it was private land, you know, donated in return for for building the, the rail line and the access corridor up the center of Vancouver Island. Like I said, well, it's private land. Well, eventually it got sold and resold and most of it is, is uh, sold to forest companies. And on private land, they have much more free reign to do what they want. Then, you know, there's no such thing as a rate of cut on private land. You know, it's, it's determined by, uh, by the market forces basically and, you know, who's paying top dollar for what size log and all that sort of thing, you know? So it's the, yeah, okay, they're not gonna yard, cross stream yard, you know, with newly fallen timber or anything like that on, uh, you know, any of those rivers flowing through that private land belt. But, you know, they'll take every stick right to water's edge, you know, they'll, they'll log it at whatever rate they might like, you know, and the size of the openings, the clear cuts, that kind of stuff, wherever they want, you know? It's, it's got nothing to do with protection of fish habitat. Right. And uh, what was what, if we we're talking about the uh, the damage there to the Englishman? Uh, when was that occurring, or or when was that that point in time where that sort of tipped the balance into decline? Well, you know, you, you can look back on the the hydrological events there. You know, Water Survey of Canada records are pretty good, and you can sort of pick out the the peak flood events and. Uh, you know, those are, those are the ones that, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back, basically. And uh, there was a number of them over the years there, you know, the, oh, I, I think it was, what, 1979, I think there was a big one there. But, uh, you know, I'd have to refresh myself again on the, on, the, on the flow records. But, you know, looking at the aftermath of those major floods, I mean, there's, there's areas there now where, you know, the old sort of rudimentary logging road, the original road that went up the Englishman River, there, were, there was one area there in particular where it was quite some distance removed from, from water's edge. Well, now there's a bench, there's the edge of the road, there's a bench and there's the edge of the river. I mean, there, the total, the center line of the road there is probably about 20 feet from the edge of the river. And it's just sort of indicative to me of how that the river now wanders back and forth across the floodplain you know, with every major flood event. And I, I had the time series photographs in my book there from the one spot where uh, you could go and you could get a perch up on, uh, on a high point on the road and look down on one particular stretch of river. And, and, you know, you could sort of document from year to year what that looked like. Well, 
over time, all the alders and maple things on that slope grew up to the point where you can't see the stream course the way you once did. So, you know, short of a drone now, you, you, you have no opportunity to sort of document those changes. But just in that short space of time that I was doing that, you know, it's pretty obvious that, my goodness, you know, boy, the center line of the river has moved a lot. And look at the amount of material that has been moved from A to B and upstream, downstream, that sort of thing. You know, it's a, the casual observer that goes up there now, it doesn't compute. They don't, they don't understand that. Oh, oh, boy, gee, the river's not where it used to be. Or I wonder if that has any implications for fish or fish habitat or anything. And, and I guess the important part of that is that that sediment load is, is also changing in its structure from more coarse debris into finer and finer sediments. Absolutely. And there's another element of that I think that, you know, I don't know if there's any time series stuff that, uh, that is available but the estuary of the Englishman River bears no resemblance to what it was originally. And that's a result of all the material that gets flushed out of the, the Englishman watershed being redeposited, you know, as soon as the current velocities dissipate down around the mouth of the river. So the, it used to, you know, there'd be a big flat out there and then it dropped off into the, into the strait or the gulf out there, you know, well, I, I submit that, that the edge of that drop-off has moved and moved and moved over time as a result of you know, thousands upon thousands of cubic meters of material being flushed out. Sure, and I guess, I guess a lot of that is probably some fair, uh, finer sediment and it's um, Absolutely. blanketing the bottom and reducing that yep. uh, benthic yep. Uh, productivity. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, shifting gears here to the Gold River, um, again, we have a similar occurrence going on there. Um, I'm particularly interested to hear what you think happened to the summer runs there. I mean, it just sort of seems like they, you know, one season to the next almost uh, disappeared. Well, this, the summers are, are kind of hanging in there. It's the winters that have, uh, you know, that have plummeted to zero, basically, according to the, the latest snorkel survey observations. But, you know, I think that that situation is a pretty good example of the consequences of logging, because if you, um, you can, the Hague Brown talked about the Heber with, you know, with in glowing terms, it was a, it was a favorite of hits, right? You know, and, and then along came the loggers. And, you know, BC Hydro in their wisdom, they, they uh, dammed, they put a little diversion dam at the top end of the Heber and, and diverted it to the east side of Vancouver Island through the Campbell Hydro system, instead of allowing it to go down to the west side in, into the gold and so on. So, you know, you, you stole summer flows that were important for juvenile rearing in the, in the Hebrew downstream. You stole them and diverted them elsewhere sort of thing. And then they logged a dickens out of that area. And, you know, it's absolute classic logging. You start at the bottom, of, you know, water's edge, go up the hill as far as you could, take every stick of timber you could until the terrain got too steep and rocky and the, and the timber value was, wasn't worth it anymore. But, you know, that's 60 years ago. Now you can go to Google Earth today and, and, and you can look at the natural recovery of those areas. I mean, the logging is long, long since over. And what's happened is that, uh, you know, nature kind of takes over as you might expect. And, you know, the, the second growth, it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't planted or anything like that. This is a pre, you know, sort of silver culture area, era and all that. So you've got a natural regeneration of, of the Douglas fir canopy that once existed there. You know, and it's progressed quicker in the valley bottom because, you know, you got thicker soils and better drainage and all that kind of stuff. So 
basically all the riparian areas and up the hill now pretty well green and you know like i say you know the all the logging damage is long in the rearview mirror so the habitat is in somewhat of a recovery mode there compared to the gold river itself where you know they just they're just logging every last stick from the upper headwaters and every tributary of the gold now so you know it's a very different situation in the gold versus the heber and I think it just, you know, once again, you can go to Google Earth. It's pretty plain on Google Earth that, gee, look at the, the recovery of the riparian areas and that sort of thing on the Heber. And then look what we got on the, on, on the gold where it's, you know, it's still clear cuts and great big openings and, and not just on the upper main stem, but all the tributaries up there now. So, and, and keeping in mind that the summer runs, you know, they, they come from the upper, upper gold, you know, the habitat that's been least impacted so far and the, the summer runs on the Heber come from the Heber, which as I say, is, is in somewhat of a recovery mode. The winter fish all originate from the lower half of the gold watershed, basically, in the areas that are most impacted and continue to be impacted by the logging industry. Oh yeah. So we're the, the, what's the abundance like now in the Heber? Are we seeing a recovery in the fish stocks there? Well, there, you know, I think it, Broadly speaking, you're talking about uh, the, the population there sort of mirrors what's been happening with the uh, ocean survival kind of situations. You know, so no, it's not as good as it once was. I think, you know, I'm going to suggest that they, the, the summer accounts there that have been going on, you know, since I was first started on, in Nanaimo there in 1975, but the counts there have probably raised from, I don't know, 125 maybe 150 up to 500 that kind of thing but not zero no. you know <laughs> not like the main stem gold for the winter runs mm, that's interesting and that so what do you attribute that uh decline in the in the main stem fish to just this again we're back to uh shifting substrates and and high flows yeah i think that uh you know because the the winter steelhead originate from the bottom half of the watershed that has been most impacted. I mean, the further down you go, the worse it gets basically, okay? The cumulative upstream, downstream effects and all that kind of stuff. So that's part of it. And um, plus I think, you know, you can't make this argument in, in, in recent years that angling's had a, an impact, but I would hold that angling did have an impact on that stock, you know, when, when it was still flourishing because there was no safe haven. People all of the mindset that, well, you know, every time it rains, the river comes up a bit, you know, a wave of new fish comes in and they disappear somewhere. Well, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't disappear. They just come in and they sort of, you know, add to what's there. And they, you know, and if there was one sort of experience that, that just crystallized all that for me, it was when we were doing, you know, a lot of our radio telemetry work out there and, midwinter and then the population seemed to be pretty large and all that you know but the tag fish that uh, that we released you know would be clustered in in big groups in the lower river they never went anywhere i mean they're there for weeks basically most of them from the time they're originally tagged until they spawn you know they go upstream a little bit maybe drop down go upstream a little bit more but there's no there's no place they can get away from the angling community you know every square inch of that river was available to angling. And the interesting thing, the most interesting thing of all that was that uh, 
whenever, you know, it seemed like, okay, well, you know, you got the water conditions are just right. You know, we're going to go out there and do some fishing and all that kind of stuff, put some more tags on. Well, you catch the, the newly arrived fish. You always catch the newly arrived fish because it just seems like they're the most vulnerable, the stupidest, you know, whatever. So, and then when you do the snorkel survey follow-ups, that's where it all crystallizes. You think, oh, well, there's a, you know, there's going to be a bunch of new fish there. No, no, no. It's the same ones you saw last week and last month and all that sort of thing. Those new arrivals, yeah, we got them too, you know. They just add to the population that's already been caught, that sort of thing, right? So, sure. you know, I, it was a no-kill fishery and, uh, you know, it, it, when that catch and release regulation first came in, you know, the, it was relatively poorly, poorly received. A lot of people stopped fishing, so the effort dropped off. The guys who hung in there started catching stupid numbers of fish because, you know, no longer did you stop fishing when you got your limit of one or two, whatever it might have been at the time. Now there's, oh, what the hell, you know, we'll just keep going and going here and see how many they are. So, you know, I think the catch and release was a mixed blessing. Yeah, we didn't kill them, but we sort of loved them to death by catching them over and over and over. And everybody assumed there's no cost associated with that. And, and I keep questioning even today, well, how much catching is too much catching? Right. Once okay, twice, three, you know, where do you hit the point where you influence the reproductive performance of that fish? It's not going to get to where it needs to be to perform as successfully as you'd like it to. Is that one capture, two, three? I don't know. But, yeah, I, you know, know, we had a number of examples around, you know, the South Coast where, you know, the estimated catch exceeded the population size dramatically. Right, which which shows that every fish is being caught more than once. Yeah, and I guess, I, and I guess without a real uh, quantifiable reduction in that fish's energy potential, uh, once it gets to the spawning grounds, you know, you really don't know what the effect is on its reproductive uh, capacity. No, I mean, uh, you know, I think that's a, a an area that should have been looked at a long time ago, but uh, you know, it's, those are still questions that are hanging out there, and I think they're very important questions in today's world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and to, to, to wrap up this segment here, um, we can touch base on the Salmon River, which uh, was a, a system that I actually had never heard about until I uh, uh, read your book. And I guess that's because by the time I was uh, getting my feet wet in the, in the steelheading world, that river was in, in a state of decline where nobody talked about it anymore. Oh, yeah. No. And, and you know, I, the thing that always struck me about the salmon was that... Uh, my goodness, what did that thing look like in any kind of a historic state? Because you can you can wander all through the valley bottom now. And of course, it's nothing but little Christmas trees that, that don't hold any substrate together at all. But uh, if you look at the, at the spacing and the size of the old growth stumps left over from the logging area, you, you, you just can't help but wonder, well, this must have been some kind of an absolutely magnificent parkland type habitat around here. And the river didn't, you don't grow great big trees and stones like that in unstable habitat. Sure. So the point is that, you know, that river course must have been pretty stable in order for those trees to grow where they did to the size they did and, you know, hold that whole valley bottom together. But, you know, once again, you know, the memories, you know, I, I recall one of the, there was a, a very competent uh, fisheries biologist for the major logging company there, McMillan Liddell at the time. And uh, I remember him telling me that, you know, the story from the inside the company was that they had, McMillan Bloedale had removed more timber from the uh, salmon or the, 
I guess so they called it their Kelsey Bay Division, but basically the, the Salmon River Valley, they had taken more timber out of there than all their other holdings on Vancouver Island combined. Mm. That tells you something about, you know, what was there and what it was worth and all that sort of thing. Well, and that's, you know, that uh, brings me back to my biggest gripe with the BC forest industry. And, you know, again, my firsthand experience up in the Charlottes is exactly the same. I mean, the, the billions of dollars that has been extracted from this province for next to no benefit to, to the population other than, you know, the people who are directly employed um, in that, in that industry. I mean, that's, it's astronomical. And I think when we look back at, at, what came out of there, which really is irreplaceable at this point. I mean, between your and our lifetime and the lifetime of your children and grandchildren, we won't see that, you know, first of all, we won't see those forest stands and we certainly won't see the economic benefit of harvesting that type of timber. No, so very true. And, and I think, you know, the, the indicator of all that is it, look at the, the, uh, the original companies involved in all that logging, whether it was on the Charlottes or Vancouver Island or take your choice, but where are they now? Long gone. Yeah. Where's the, yeah. see, McMillan, are you kidding me? You know, there's been, I don't know what, about three iterations since they left town kind of thing of all those same holdings, sure. you know, and uh, it was always joked well, you know, so what did uh, McMillan-Bulladell do for, you know, all those Esquimalt and Nanaimo Railway land grant, that private land holding up? Well, they logged the hell out of it. And then they they took as much gravel out of, out of there as they could and sold that off. And then they subdivided and left town, went to Brazil, that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> There's a lesson. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, unfortunately, it's it's impossible for us to dial the clock back. And I guess in, in a specific reference to the, uh, the the steelhead or the salmon populations, you know, the, the genetic damage to those runs uh, combined with the habitat loss, both uh, upstream and, and in the ocean. I mean, it's potentially we'll never see those stocks recovered. Uh, yeah, I mean, if it took, 60 years or more, you know, to create the problem, it's probably going to take that long, you know, to, for those, for the habitat and the stocks to rebuild themselves. And oh, by the way, they're not going into the same ocean that they once did. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, 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 that's the critical problem that we don't have control over, you know, even if we have control over what happens in the Johnson Straits, once those fish leave that area and get into the open ocean, we've got, you know, zero ability to control what happens to them in terms of harvest or what uh, climatic conditions they're going to encounter. Yep, that's exactly it. You know, and there's a there's another good bit of work that's just come out in the last few days, actually, from the, it's uh, the Wild Steelhead Coalition. You know, I guess that's Washington based, but you know, Washington State. But uh, you know, they've uh, they've highlighted the uh, the ocean conditions as they're known to exist right now. You know, following the latest findings of, uh, I guess it's the National Ocean, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of the uh, United States, you know, very competent group that's been around for a long time, of course, you know, and they're monitoring the Central North Pacific and Gulf of Alaska salmon rearing areas, salmon and steelhead rearing pastures for a lot of our North American origin salmonids and all that sort of thing. Well, guess what? It's not a happy story. It's uh, the sea surface temperatures are on the rise up there again. It's the, the return of the blob, if you will. It's, it, it's not looking good. Yeah. And then at the same time, you know, we're overloading those habitats out there with cultured pink salmon, especially the chums as well from Japan, Russia, Alaska, 
you know, so we're overgrazing the base of the food chain that ultimately is responsible for, you know, sustaining the more desirable species like steelhead and Chinook. So, uh, you know, once again, it's that double jeopardy kind of story. Remember, there is a time where, you know, the precautionary principle should prevail. We're in it. Yes. So did you personally have an experience to, uh, to fish the salmon while it was uh, before its decline? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, I shouldn't say that, you know, I shouldn't say before its decline, but, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time there, myself and my staff in near the early eighties, maybe beginning as early as 1979. I went back my diaries and that again, but, uh, you know, it, it, the, you know, the, Consequences of logging were, were very evident, but it, it, you know, there was still enough of a fish population there to be very, very attractive. And the unique thing about those fish was, you know, I think I said this in my book as well, is that uh, those are big fish, you know. Right. I figured there was basically three rivers in the province that uh, were, you know, unusual, unique, if you will, in that uh, they, they produced a high proportion of large fish and I refer to the salmon as Kispiok South because it was one of those rivers. So you had the Salmon River with an unusual proportion of 20 pound plus fish, you know, the kind of that benchmark of, you know, notoriety in the steelhead world, 20 pounder, wow, you know. And the Kispiok's, of course, you know, internationally renowned since the 1950s for the size of its fish. And the other one near and dear to your heart probably is the Yakun. The Yakun has quite a history of producing unusually large winter steelhead. They're yeah, not- there's, there's certainly, um, I have some credible tales of 30 pound plus fish coming out of there. Uh, that dates back to the late 60s, early 70s. Yep. Um, but there's, there are, you know, there has been, let's say, I haven't seen anything that size in the last 10 years, but certainly lots of, you know, 20, 22s. Um, yep. And again, you know, again, that's a, that's a system which is in precipitous decline. And, and as we uh, commented on our email exchange before we got on the, the show here today, a uh, good, good friend of mine who's grown up there and you know, his father fished there since the late 60s, early 70s, and they've yet to encounter a fish there this season. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's a, a much, and the, the, there, the habitat has come back to a certain degree. Uh, and certainly my experience there last year uh, with with uh, high water and, and the lack of turbidity would indicate that the the logging damage has healed, but something else is going on, and, and there's just the abundance has dropped off dramatically. Yeah, well, you know, you can't can't blame fish farms. <laughs> you know, it ain't them. Uh, you know, I, maybe they got a pinhead problem up there, but I haven't heard about it. If they do, not like we hear down here in this part of the world. So. No, it doesn't. Uh, doesn't seem to be. And of course, you know, the Masset Inlet, uh, which is a, a giant fish factory or a giant young fish factory, it's, I think it's large enough that even though the logging effects of the surrounding area, there's still enough intact habitat there um, that, you know, that shouldn't be. It's certainly not like the, the lower coast here, the southern coast. So, you know, it's a real mystery as to what's happened to those fish. Yeah, well, once again, you know, we're putting them into a, you know, an ocean pasture, uh, you know, a rearing environment out there that isn't what it was. And, uh, you know, if, if we don't look after what we can look after, which is their freshwater life history phase, you know, look after that to the best of our ability. Well, we're going to get what we get. 
Yeah, yeah. So when we last spoke on the show, which was kind of mid-August of, of 2020, we were both making plans to travel up to the hallow waters of the Skeena watershed. Um, how did your trip go? Uh, the fishing was great. The catching was the worst ever, as far as I, I'm concerned. But, you know, I, I, I guess I got past the point where, you know, the catching is all that important to me. But uh, I was partnered up with my son there, you know, for... The first time since what 2013 i guess that uh, he's had the opportunity to join me for a trip up there and uh you know to me that i mean it was it was sort of the the perfect set of circumstances in a lot of ways because you know they it had been really wet up there all through the summer in fact i think you know smithers they were telling us that uh, that the summer rainfall had been 50 percent higher than the previous highest ever recorded that sort of thing you know yes. so the river levels were abnormally high all, all through and until about three days before we departed Vancouver and heading north you know all of a sudden uh, the weather dried out and by the time we got there the, the Boulder River for example was a, a very acceptable height and clarity and all that kind of stuff and we had we were there for two weeks and it was the two-week window of perfect conditions you know from a weather and a, and a water standpoint you know so okay well you know that's Above all else, it's water conditions that sort of, you know, predetermine, you know, how successful you might or might not be. So, okay, great. You know, and, and how much competition was there? Well, not much competition because most of the guys didn't even fish last year, right? The COVID thing and border restrictions and all that kept them, them out of the equation. So, all right, well, that's a pretty good recipe. You don't have any guides and you don't have any... Uh, you know, any local competition to speak of, uh, water conditions are good, we should do pretty well, right? Well, the first, the f I, I borrowed back my old jet boat from my uh, successor in Smithers, you know, when, when I departed that country and everything. So, so we got a jet boat too, right? Okay, well, we're not going to fish anywhere where we, we don't expect to catch fish. So you sort of pick off your, your gold medal spot first and away we go. And in the first 20 minutes, my son hooked and lost two fish. In, in the first 20 minutes, you're thinking, ah, awesome, that's going to be great. That is the only time in two weeks that, that more than one fish was, was seen or, you know, risen, whatever, in, in a single spot. And there were multiple times we fished that spot and a lot of other spots completely empty. Not a sign of life, you know. So a bit scary in that respect, but, you know, by the end of the trip, my son did okay. I mean, he, he managed about slightly less than a fish to hand for the days that he fished. I was way less than that because I was putting him through all the best places first. And, you know, he's a very competent fisherman now, very competent, you know, I don't want to fish behind him, but no point. But, uh, you know, the fact that there was, you know, so much empty water and only single encounters when you did find a fish, you know, it stands to reason that, well, you know, there really isn't any point fishing behind sort of thing. You know, get out your camera, perhaps. But, but that was, you know, and then the, the night, so it was a Saturday that we were packing up to leave on Sunday morning. On Saturday night, the skies opened and there was like two inches of rain. And the rivers just went right through the roof and they pretty much stayed there for the rest of the season. So, you know, whatever fish were there had, you know, had a pretty good safety belt from lack of you know pressure from the angling community plus the added protection of mother nature you know so 
that was probably all pretty good. But but the run was small. Make no mistake. I mean, uh, it was pathetically small. Yeah. And, and do we do we have empirical evidence to support these anecdotal observations? Oh yeah. You know, you've got the you've got the tiny test fishery down there, and the DFO conducted test fishery from. You know, that's been going on since, what, 1956. So you've got that as a sort of a raw indicator of how many fish are coming up the river. And, but the one that, uh, that tells me the most is the mark recapture population estimate that they've been doing at Whitsett or Morristown, just down the highway from, from uh, Smithers itself. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, my big bone of contention over that program is there hasn't been a report produced, you know, since about 2013, 2014, something like that. That was the last report that ever came out of Arizona. Why are we spending hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to support a program that produces no benefit whatsoever? You know, it's not as if, okay, well, here's some information we're going to apply in a management context or something. No, never happening. But, you know, the returns from uh, 2013, or sorry, uh, 2020, the last the last information I saw, and I think it was pretty much at the conclusion of that program, they had recaptured, I believe it was, I believe it was two steelhead. It might only have been one. So they, they beat Shane him at the tail end of the canyon there and tag him and release him. And then they, they do the recapture thing with dip nets at the top of the canyon. And based on the remark recovery, you know, they run it through the formula and they get a population estimate. Well, you know, the, the actual number of recoveries, it was, it was one or two. That's it. And on the strength of that, they put a, a population estimate together. I think it was 1,300 fish. Wow. 1,300 for the bulk lake. Uh, okay, well, you know, the confidence intervals around that are going to be everywhere from zero to, you know, 25,000, that kind of stuff. But the point is that uh, there was damn few fish in the bulk lake, and, and it kind of mirrored the test fishery results and the angling. Sorry, Bob. You, sorry, Bob you, 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 sorry, Bob. You cut out there for a second. You froze on me. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, so you, you you just said the the results of the, the the test fishery, and then the rest was uh, seized. Yeah. Okay. Well, you got okay. So you you compare the test fishery with Morristown, and uh, you know you're not going to have a great expectation. It's going to be a lot of fish at Morristown, but uh, but that that estimate came out you know way lower than than I would have expected, and you know. Water conditions aside, you know, imperfection of sampling methodology, whatever, it's, you know, they've been doing the same thing there for, I don't know, more than 20 years now. So it's not as if they're, you know, you could blame the methodology or anything like that. But the bottom line is they come up with an estimate of something like 1,300 fish in a system that's supposed to represent 40% of the production of Skeena steelhead. Well, you, you know, you don't want to do too much of that math before you start to scare yourself about how small the the return and the uh, the actual escapement was this year. And so th that has been documented as the one of the lowest years on record then, or, or where are we at with in terms of uh, ranking it? Yeah, I, I have to look back now. The, uh, the, uh, the actual test fish index, you know, for what it's worth was, uh, it was not the lowest by any means. There was lower years in the, uh, in the 1960s, I think. But the thing that people have to remember is that the test index, you know, especially in those earlier years, represents the number of fish that got past a very intensive commercial fishery and into the Skeena. 
Okay, so you have to, in order to estimate and compare run sizes, you have to look at the catch plus the escapement, you know, and it, just to look at the test index from year to year to year doesn't really tell the story about the abundance until you add in that commercial catch. Well, the commercial catch in, in the last few years has been declining significantly because, you know, the constraints around Chinook harvest, for example, conservation concerns, sockeye, and, you know, so still that never entered the end of the conservation equation up there, believe me, but, uh, you know, if there's a problem with Chinook, for example, or, or sockeye, well, you can rest assured that there's going to be some cutbacks in the commercial fishery and all that. Well, that, uh, you know, that has to be all sort of taken into account to, to be able to properly interpret what those test fishery numbers for the steelhead index are. So this year's return, last year's return as well, the test fishery would, would be a pretty decent estimate of the total population because there was no catch. And, it, and if you put it in that sort of context, you, know, you quickly uh, realize that, yeah, these past couple of years have been bad ones. Yeah. And uh, so amongst those fish that you did uh, have the opportunity to, to bring to hand, uh, did you have any evidence there of, of uh, gill net damage? Uh, no, but we did. We caught two, I think, two tag fish from Morristown. Okay, so that, that sort of tells you that, uh, I mean, it was two out of a dozen sort of thing, right? Okay, so that that starts to tell you something about, you know, there can't be that many fish because they didn't tag hardly any at Morristown this year. You know, those tags that we got were from the beach sanding operation. No, sorry, sorry, I lied. One of those tags was a repeat spawner. Okay. Okay, so it had been tagged two years ago. Hmm. And and the other one was, uh, was one of this year's, you know, which had been tagged, I don't know, three weeks before or something like that, you know. So well, once again, you know, the, if we're getting a couple of tagged fish, you know that neither one of those tagged fish came from a population of, that could possibly be very large. A repeat spawner, there's hardly any of them in the Skeena anyhow to begin with, right? And the fact that you catch a tag one, it's like, oh boy, you know, that's probably a pretty high exploitation rate, if you will, you know, and, and the same thing on that other one that came from the beach scene operation. So, I mean, those are all just little anecdotal signals that sort of, you know, help paint a picture that there are not very many fish out there. Yeah, yeah. And what, what do you, what are factors do you attribute these poor escapement levels uh, up in the Skeena there? Well, you know, in a sense, in, in a sense it's, uh, you know, it's somewhat of a repeat of the of the pattern that seems to be emerging, you know, from Vancouver Island or the Lower Fraser or down into Washington now. But uh, you know, okay, we're putting the fish out of those rivers into a hostile ocean environment relative to what it used to be, so we're going to get less of them back. But at the same time, you know, if you look at the the impacts of angling over time, they can't help but be perceived as having increased dramatically in, in the business of, well, you know, and, and I get criticized all the time. Oh, well, don't be so hard on guides. Well, you know what? We've got a guiding industry now that is, bears no resemblance to any time in history. Those guys are good. They're very good at what they do. I mean, that's how they make their living. Right. 
but they're out there and, and it's relentless pressure over the entire period of time that the steelhead are present. How much catching is too much catching? Well, the only, yeah, the, 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 the only for, for most of the guides, that's the only way they fish. It's been catch and release for years and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it's that, it's that same question, you know, you catch them once, that's okay. Maybe uh, twice, three, four, what? What's the cumulative yeah. impact? Yeah. I don't know, but I, you know, it's like, I keep, I keep saying that, you know, the, the anger catches, particularly the, from the guided anglers, creates the illusion of abundance because we are so much better collectively as, as an angling community today than at any time in our history you know, the, the efficiency of the gear, the technology that, that's available to us, you know, and how effective we are at catching those fish, the access that we have, whether it's by road or boat or helicopter or whatever, you name it. Uh, there's no safe haven. Like I said about those Gold River winter runs, they can't get away from you anymore. It's not as if, you know, you go back 20 years ago, well, you know, there's a lot of areas of the Skeena that weren't getting fished. Still had producing areas that didn't get fished, you know, hardly ever. Sometimes never. Now everything is basically under the gun one way or another. Sure. What's the impact? And, and the fact that, you know, the guide community and all their marketing literature and saying, you know, fish is good. Come on up, you know, that sort of thing. Well, what's happening in, in my view is that we're catching an increasing proportion of a diminishing supply of fish. And that creates the illusion of abundance. Sure. And certainly if, you know, if you have a, you know, let's say if 10, 10% is your mortality rate on your catch and release operations, if you've got 10,000 fish, that maybe is an insignificant number. But if we're now in these, you know, thousand fish kind of realm, well, that 10% is a significant chunk of that population. Yeah, it comes down to numbers, you know, rates doesn't mean anything beyond a certain point. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the, the only, the only uh, pro I would have in terms of the, the guided anglers is that the, the commitment of amongst most of the guides uh, for proper fish handling is probably a lot greater than some of the privateers. And, you know, certainly I've witnessed some awful stuff with, uh, you know, not to throw the Americans under the bus, but, uh, you know, particularly, you know, Americans on the, on the Yakun, for instance, kicking fish up onto the beach and they're covered in sand and they're, you know, wiping the sand off with their glove to take a photo. And it's just like, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Whereas, you know, particularly amongst the Skeena guides that I've seen up there, they seem to be very committed to the, um, to the health and well-being of those fish. And obviously they're their livelihood. And so they're treated with a greater degree of respect. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, uh, you know, they're, they like to call themselves professionals. And, you know, if you're making money at something, I guess you are a professional. Fair enough. And, uh, you know, they do a really good job in that context. But uh, I still think that, you know, there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to, to market the angling experience instead of the catching. You know, and, and, and I think the steelhead guys are way ahead of, you know, like the ocean guides, for example. Sure. Zero sure. shots on the wharf, you know, and the pounds of protein and all that crap, you know, like goodness me. Yeah. Yeah, long yeah. So, so yeah, the guides are better, but you know, there's some interesting stuff that's just come out of Washington. I don't know if you, you've seen this, but you know, they're, they're concerned over uh, declining escapements and impacts of angling and all this kind of stuff, you know, prompted a whole new suite of regulations for Puget Sound, the Olympic Peninsula, and they came into effect on December the 14th. Yeah, and, I saw those. Yeah, okay. No fishing from a boat. Okay. That's 
big business on the Olympic Peninsula rivers in particular, you know, the drift boat guides and all that sort of thing. And, and they got the numbers to back it up. You know, they can, they can look at the, the number of fish, proportion of the total catch and all that, that's accounted for by the guides in boats versus everybody else. And it's yeah. off the charts, the difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you're impacting a relatively small number of operators that have a, a huge influence on the status of the resorts. Tough dilemma. Yeah. And did, uh, was angling from, I think, uh, in the, in the lower Skeena, I think that's been banned now as well. Like, you know, pulling your plugs for Chinook. Uh, am I correct in that assumption? Or is that well, still Yeah, there's the, you know, the, the hog line, you know, which is sort of the, one of the traditional areas there around the mouth of the Caleb, you know, everybody sort of gunnel to gunnel anchored up with their plugs and all that sort of stuff, trailing behind waiting for the, you know, the 80 pounder to show up, that kind of stuff. Uh, no, that that's uh, off the books now. But um, yeah. I think there's, you know, outside the sort of the core area and season, I think, you know, you're still a lot of fish out of the boat down right. on, you know, the main stand skina. Right, right. Okay. So there, there, there's uh, um, specific area closures then from fishing from boats. Yeah, as opposed to a blanket so. yeah yeah and, and certainly you know if you're if you're unable physically unable to get unless you're handicapped i mean if you're just kind of a you know lazy fat guy that just wants to stand in the boat all day i mean first of all that's uh boring is i'll get out and um you know i think if, if, if you're not willing to put some level of sacrifice physical sacrifice into your angling endeavors you know maybe you should be rolling around a golf course in a golf cart and uh swilling beers all day and you know maybe you should be thinking about a different pastime yeah, well, you know, once again, I think it, it comes down to the to the marketing strategy that uh, you know that some of the guys have used over time, and and you know, but you know, even the broader angling community, it's not, you know, you don't see a lot of stuff about you know, come and join us for a for a absolutely magnificent outdoor experience or something like that. Come on, we're gonna get them. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Although you know, I I, I I did have uh, Brian Niska. Uh, on the show uh, not too long ago, and and he is working on marketing campaigns of that nature, which is, you know, hey, if, if you if you encounter a steelhead a day, you're you know you've had a great day, and and uh, you know look where you are, you know look at the magnificence of of which you know in some in some cases in my mind, um, that's obviously a, a a situation of our times, but it's also a sad. A reflection of where we're at that uh you know in this great province with these incredible watersheds that we do have that we're now looking to market the experience of standing in the water looking at the scenery as opposed to pursuing fish which you know as we began the episode were once so incredibly abundant yeah no i i agree you know brian's a forward thinker you know lesson for that you know there's just no question about it but you know there's a survival imperative there as well, eh? And, uh, you know, good for him for recognizing that and yeah. trying to implement that to the extent yeah. possible. But, you know, it, it, it gets back to, a, you know, our, our, our human footprint, basically. There's too many of us and we're too good at what we do now and we're working on a diminishing resource. So sooner or later, you've got to try and match supply and demand. And, you know, ultimately, I mean, and, you know, and I think, Washington's even sort of, you know, mulling this around in the back of their minds. Well, you know, do we need times and places where we limit the number of participants? 
Yeah, and I think that's important. I mean, everywhere else in the world, you know, or the European salmon fisheries, you know, it's, it's a very expensive uh, hobby other than in maybe the lower productive uh, areas where, and certainly the, the Europeans or, or traveling anglers from America coming here are probably chuckling to themselves because it's ridiculously inexpensive in comparison. And, and you know, these, these areas, as you suggest, if we reduce the, the angling pressure by, you know, instituting uh, beat rates and, and this type of thing, number one would potentially raise some more money for some conservation initiatives. Uh, and it would also reduce the angling pressure. I think, you know, there's lots of ways of doing it, you know, and, and you know, discriminating financially is, is uh, shouldn't be one of them in my view. I mean, that's the, you know, the Cola Peninsula model sort of thing, you know, or, you know, most of the, you know, storied Atlantic salmon streams that are still with us in, in Europe, but, uh, you know, early history of Eastern North America, but the, uh, you know, I mean, we can have some kind of a lottery system that's open to all sort of thing that, you know, I mean, you can put the rules around whatever you want, you know, you can charge whatever fees you want, that sort of thing. But the bottom line is that, uh, you know, ultimately I think we have to deal with limiting the number of participants per unit time and space mm. or everybody's going to lose. Yeah. We, yeah. we can let it go the way it is, you know, and we're all going to be armed to arm here pretty soon. We can recreate the, I don't know, the better model, you know, elsewhere in British Columbia, I suppose. Is, is that what we want to do? <laughs> please, please no, please no. <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, something has to be done. And I guess at some point, um, there's going to have to be some sacrifices made by everyone. And, uh, and, and Brian also makes the point that, you know, closing the rivers and having no one on the rivers is also folly because the, the mere activity of having people there is actually a way to keep eyes on the resource. And, and if there are some people poaching or, or, you know, doing crazy shit in the river, uh, or out there in the wild, you know, we need eyeballs in those systems to report uh, those type of activities. He's absolutely spot on. I think we've got lots of examples of that, you know. Sure. I mean, even to the point, as, as we transition into our next segment here, um, you know, Brian even suggests uh, potentially on the, on the Thompson uh, that we have hookless flies and maybe, you know, have it as a, a skating, dry, skating dry hookless fishery just to get some people back there. And, uh, you know, rather than commenting on uh, the size of the specimen you caught at the end of the day at the bar, you're, you're talking about the, the number of rises or takes that you had and maybe how long the fish had that fly clamped in his mouth before he uh, decided to let it go. All ideas that should be explored, in my view. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. closure is a last resort and, you know, it's not doing anything for us. Yeah. I can't yeah, tell yeah, you. Yeah. I, just last night, you know, one of the tackle industry people from Vancouver, you know, just messaged me saying that, you know what, I'm done with the steelhead thing. I'm going to, I'm strictly focused on still water now. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that message probably a half dozen times in the last, I don't know, six weeks from mm -hmm. people with, they're directly connected to the industry and long histories within the BC recreational fishery, especially steelhead. They're all saying the same thing. I'm out of here. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I guess it, at some point, if you're not a, a dyed-in-the-wood steelheader like uh, you or I, spending the hours and hours and hours of, of casting and stumbling and freezing your toes and, uh, you know, for, for, what, uh, for what reward, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot of people with, you know, especially maybe if you haven't had as much experience, you want to, you want to see some uh, tangible uh, results for your efforts, right? 
Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> what's the definition of insanity? You know, well, you know, <laughs> doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcomes. Uh, that's hmm. it. That's it. You know, it's so, I, you know, we go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as, as we just sort of alluded to with the, with the, the Thompson river fishery, um, which would include the Chilcotin, although that's uh, less storied, perhaps um, we're rapidly approaching uh, extirpation of those stocks. Um, and it seems like well in advance of the 2019 uh, season, there was a Kelsey application uh, recommending listing those stocks under the endangered species at risk act. Uh, why hasn't this happened to date? Well, you know, <laughs> they, yes, they, you know, COSWIC, the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, you know, a, a, an extremely competent group of scholars, independent, review the status, uh, all the available information for Thompson Steelhead. They, they uh, come down with a, with a determination that those fish are endangered and they should be listed as such through the Species at Risk Act. Okay, so Kosowick hands it off and it then goes to the Federal Minister of the Environment, ultimately, who ultimately makes the decision. Well, he decides not to list those fish, okay? And instead they're gonna have a, you know, a, 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 was it? a recovery potential assessment, an RPA, okay? so. You know, the King's Horses and men get together again and they, uh, they come up with this plan that they're going to, you know, supposedly save and restore Thompson Steelhead as a result of. Well, okay, so two, 2018 was the original Kosowick thing. They'd just gone through that a second time, okay? Same recommendation. Yep, <laughs> that stock's endangered. Those stocks are endangered. They should be listed. Well, it, the process of going back to the federal cabinet and, and uh, the Minister of the Environment, not the Minister of Fisheries, the Minister of Environment, that process will not be completed until after the 2021 steelhead return is in the river. It, anything that happens administratively with the COSAWIC and Sarah listing and all that will come after yet another year of returns and the status quo. They've already announced that there will be no changes to the plan, if you want to call it that, you know, for, you know, conserving Thompson Steelhead. So how's it working so far? That's my question. <laughs> it isn't. It's just, are you kidding me? You really think that this plan is working? And so, so the plan is essentially observation. I mean, there isn't any measures being taken, it sounds like. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a long story, but, uh, you know, it, it sort of begins with, you know, there's a, a freedom of information request that's been in the works for what, uh, must be 16 months now, at least, from the BC Wildlife Federation, because, you know, the recommendations uh, from DFO to the federal minister around the, the COSAWIC recommendation okay so you got the scientists said list those fish federal government people sort of yeah i don't know we want to already send that message so they kind of messed with the message that went east 
And you know, that's being sniffed out through this freedom of information request that's been completely stonewalled. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise, yeah. It's going nowhere and, and it's just so symptomatic of, you know, the internal workings of government and how, you know, this isn't about conservation for Christ's sake. I mean, nothing could be more obvious than the status of the Thompson River Steelhead and Chilcotin already, forget it, you know. If that doesn't qualify as a conservation crisis that commands the implementation of a species at risk act listing, what the hell does? Yeah. So it seems, it, it seems to me that the, the laws of Canada are not being followed here. Uh, is there a legal recourse uh, that can be taken? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. You know, I think uh, the, the people to ask that question might be the BC Wildlife Federation because I know one of their people is has spent an inordinate amount of time chasing down his freedom of information, information, all that kind of thing. And, and I think he's pretty conversant in a lot of what goes on, you know, sort of within the legal context. Yeah, I mean, that's the, people often say that the, the litigious society in America is, is negative, but I actually think it's the reverse. I mean, it, it seems like there's a lot more checks and balances that they have legally than we do, um, especially against actions that the government takes. Yeah, I think, you know, you're right, you know, it sort of cuts both ways, I suppose, but uh, I think the fear of litigation sort of, you know, drives a lot of better decisions in the States. Up here, there's no fear of litigation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, wait, I thought there was a, I forget who said it, but it's, you know, basically once a government is in power, that's the end of democracy until the next election. So, you know, Canada is quasi-democracy in terms of, you know, the, the authoritativeness that the leadership has once they're in power. Yeah, no, I, tough to deny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what are the major factors then conspiring against these fish? Um, and and what, is, uh, what is the best management practice that we can take uh, to improve their abundance and, and try to turn this around? Stop killing them. <laughs> you know, with... Okay, so you, you look at the forces that are conspiring against, you know, something like a Thompson steel, and you say, okay, well, you know, the freshwater habitat, yeah, okay, uh, you, you know, there's, there's some things that can be done there, but that's not going to move the dial all that much, you know, so, you know, you've got a lot of really good habitat, the Thompson River drainage is a pretty big place, and, and uh, you know, from a water chemistry and general productivity standpoint, you know, it's pretty good, you know, there's just a whole lot of bacon habitat out there, so, okay, messing around with the, the freshwater side of things is, is, you know, nickels and dimes at best, not gonna get you anywhere. So you're sending those fish to sea, there's nothing you can do about what's going on out there in the deep blue sea. You know, you're gonna get what you get, all right? So then, you know, what are the levers that we can apply, you know, beyond that? Well, harvest. And there's, you know, there's sort of warring factions out there now that say, oh, the goddamn Kinnipheads, it's them, you know, and nothing else matters. You've got to kill half the seals in the Gulf of Georgia. Sorry, the Salish Sea. So, yeah, I, I say, well, what's the art of the possible there? First, the debate within the science community is anything but conclusive about, you know, the impact of the so-called Kinnipeds. Okay, so that's a major obstacle. How many marine mammal lovers are there compared to steelhead lovers? Where's the weight of political power gonna be in that argument? So I, I say, you know, you can pretty much forget about harvesting enough pinnipeds, you know, to, you know, meet the sort of 
computer model objectives of reducing their population to the point where you know they would have absolutely no impact on Thompson Steelhead. Okay, that ain't gonna happen. The only thing that's entirely within our control is to manage the harvest once those things are in the home waters. Now that, you know, the sort of the near shore approaches, whether it's Wanda Fuca, you know, down the west side of Anchor Island, Wanda Fuca, Johnson Street, Georgia Street, both of the Fraser, that sort of thing. But most, most importantly, within the Fraser River itself. We, you know, we've got to stop killing those fish, what's left of them. We've got to give them a chance. And, you know, they're more resilient than, than uh, people generally acknowledge. I simply do not buy the argument that, you know, you can sort of maintain the status quo, if you will, and, you know, mess around a little bit with the times and places and configurations of gillnets or something like that, you know, and, and we'll do fine. Uh, give me a break, you guys, you know, where do you get that stuff from? You got to, we're at the point, this is a severe conservation crisis. We have to stop killing those fish. End of story. So that means you do not put a gillnet in the migration corridor of those fish, period. And it's not as if there aren't alternatives. Why are those gillnets there? Well, they're, they're seeking to harvest enhanced chums. Well, where the, yeah, okay. You and I paid for the hatcheries to grow those chums that are denying us the opportunity to go fishing for a Thompson's gillnet. Well, how twisted is that? A little ass backwards. And, and we're talking about, you know, essentially a row fishery, you know, that's the, the money product out of those chums, right? Tell me about the historic precedent of a gillnet fishery by First Nations for chum row. You know, you get well, all that, all I, I would argue, I'm immemorial and all that. That's just fabricated rubbish. Well, sure, as, as, as is a gillnet made out of monofilament for, well, you know, for starters, that's that's just a non sequitur. It's absolutely. I mean, there's you know, somebody's going to try and tell us that uh, you know the First Nations had gillnets 150 years ago. I need to ask you a question quick. Ray's going to the dump. Do you want anything to go? My wife's asking me a question. Anyways, um, <laughs> no, the uh, uh, what yeah, the yeah, I mean, I've seen estimates here just in the last few days about you know the. You know, some anthropologists coming up with some wide-eyed estimates of how many sockeye the uh, Stolo First Nation used to harvest in the in the Lower Fraser. You know, in in the pre-contact days, and they come up with estimates of you know like millions, millions yeah. of sockeye. What were, what were they doing with them? Canning them and selling them? Like, come on, where were they go. going? Are you kidding me? Yeah. If you think about well, how, you know, a commercial fishing industry is hard pressed you know, to harvest and process that number of fish. You know, with a fleet of, you know, high-powered vessels and, you know, canning facilities and everything else, you know? And, and you're telling me the Stolos in the pre-contact era were catching millions of sockeye? With what? And what did they do with them? And oh, by the way, you know, there's a pretty good history of, you know, being raided by the Euclatas from up on Quadra Island, you know, and capturing slaves and all that kind of stuff, you know? And that's recorded history, okay? That's not, you know, some fabricated stuff from yesteryear. That's on record from the early, you know, the earliest records of the Hudson's Bay Company, for example. You can't sure. refute that stuff. And there's also, you know, you can, you can go back and you can look at uh, 
you know, in the early days of the, uh, of the Hudson's Bay presence on the lower Fraser, Fort Langley, for example, you know, okay, they, they were originally established there as fur traders. And, and it was things like beaver, you know, that uh, were the commodity of interest with, between First Nations and the Hudson's Bay Company. Well, it didn't take long for the Hudson's Bay Company to realize that, boy, there's a bunch of fish here and we can salt those things, throw them in barrels and export them and do okay. So commercial fishing, if you will, started to take over from fur trade. But if you look at the early records, and there are records of how many barrels of salmon were, were basically sold by the First Nations, the Stolos in particular, to the Hudson's Bay Company, they bear no resemblance to this anthropological stuff that says millions of fish. And so what do we, do you, do you recall what that volume is that uh, they talk about there? Yeah, I'd have to look it up, but it was, you know, I don't know, it started off really small, like, I don't know, hundreds of barrels or something like that, the first go around. And, you know, a few years later, it was into the thousands of barrels, but, you know, not tens of thousands. Right. That kind of stuff, right? And so do we have a, an economic estimate of, of what this chum fishery is, is actually worth? I mean, you know, this, this obviously this isn't a food fishery. This is a, a, an effort to go out, harvest the, the chum, retain the roe, and I guess, you know, the flesh goes to either low market, low value markets or pet food, right? As far as I know. Yeah, no, I think that, that essentially captures it. You know, there, there's some value from the, from the carcasses now, as best I understand. But, you know, without the roe, that fishery wouldn't exist you know that's that's the profit right there so you know and and in terms of the economics that would be a very very interesting analysis you know so what is it costing us to run those chum enhancement facilities and you know what's the return who does it go to how's it being allocated you know what's the cost of quote unquote managing the fishery you know as opposed to the landed value of the catch and so on but put all those sorts of things into the equation and, 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 you know, guide some intelligent decision-making. Well, for sure. And, and, and the, where I'm going with this is, you know, given uh, the multitude of handouts that the present liberal administration is involved in, uh, surely they can, you know, put a little bit more into the pot to bring these first nations fishers out of the water and keep them at home and give them a check that's going to offset all these problems. I mean, it's, it's, and I, well, I, I, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, one extreme in my view. And yeah, okay, well, how about if we pay you not to fish? Period. I mean, we're, 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 we're paying millennials to stay home because they're afraid of the flu. So, you know, at, the, at, at what point is it more important to retain these historic stocks and, and you know, life of the province uh, for, you know, what I would imagine amounts to potentially a few million dollars. I mean, that, that's a... Uh, that that equation there to me is a very simple one. If we're, we're printing money uh, like it's monopoly money, then why not print a bit more? Well, yeah, but you know, it, it's not an either or thing either. You know, and I mean, you could easily harvest all those chums when you know they were sort of their value was maximized. The eggs are at you know sort of the most developed and, and most valuable point. They could easily be harvested outside the Thompson Steelhead Migration Corridor. You can go get them in the stave or the, you know, the lower better or, you know, the, the lower Harris and Weaver Creek, all of those terminal areas. You know, the trouble is that, uh, that you've got the individual First Nations that are, are separate legal entities, okay? There, I mean, I think it's 27 of them between Tawasson and, 
and Boston Bar, or not Boston Bar, Yale, 27 legally defined separate governments. Okay. Now, of course, the fish are passing through all the successive territories and governments. Put the, you know, my approach would be to say, okay, you guys are out of the water. End of discussion. Nobody's fishing. You can have all the surplus chums in a row and all that kind of stuff. Now, you guys go and figure out how you're going to do that in the terminal areas and how you're going to share the value of, of the, end, the end value of that product between you, all of you who have legal rights and territories and all that kind of stuff, legal governments along that migration corridor. How hard can that be? Oh, You've got to drive the process. And the way you drive that is you say, okay, well, Thompson Steelhead, Interior Fraser Steelhead are listed under Sarah. That means nobody gets to play. Get it? Nobody. Okay. So you guys go back and, and uh, figure out how you're going to get your chum roll and all that stuff and share that wealth and so on and so forth. Come to us when you got the answer. In the meantime, down to us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my interpretation of the Canadian Constitution indicates that conservation must take precedence over these food, social, and ceremonial fisheries. Uh, can DFO or the First Nations clearly elucidate the boundary between this fishery and more importantly, where the boundary exists between it and conservation? Absolutely. You know, and I've pounded that question, I don't know how many times now, you know, it's very clear that the Constitution Act lays out plainly conservation, then food, social, ceremonial, then everybody else. You know, well, food, social, and ceremonial fisheries clearly trump conservation. There's any number of examples of that around, and, you know, the, the lower Fraser and, you know, the multitude of stocks, and that is classic in that respect. If conservation was the objective, there would be a lot less fishing going on there. There would be no gill nets. You know, drive the process of selective fishery, fishing by banning gill nets, end of discussion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so to me, there, there potentially is a, a constitutional challenge on, on a legal basis uh, on that point. I mean, if, if um, this is continuing in contravention of the Constitution, there's a reason the Constitution is in place is to protect the, you know, protect the all of society and all of Canadians. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. And, and it goes back to what we said earlier. I mean, if this is the United States, you know, they would have been all over that years yeah. ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. but, you know, good old Canada, well, we just sort of watch it happen. Yeah. So just touching base again on this, this Pinniped uh, management plan. To me, it almost seems like this is a bit of a distraction or a misdirection by DFO to shift the focus away from factors that we can really control. Because as you suggest, the, the, the possibility that that actually comes into uh, reality is very small. Maybe in the north or, or more remote areas, it's a potential, but uh, I just don't see, I see uh, massive protesters uh, everywhere of, you know, the, the boat with a thousand seals draped across, it comes to the, you know, that's not going to be met well. And once, once the TV cameras get that, that's probably the, you know, the first day and the last day that that's going to be allowed. Well, you know, it's not as if we don't have an example to draw from. You can look at the East Coast seal hunt and see how that was perceived, you know. We, we, we want Zsa Gabor back on on our coast now, you know, sort of extolling the virtues of anti-seal hunting. Well, I guess it's a little bit different when you're clubbing a baby seal that's so cute and cuddly as opposed to, uh, you know, sniping a, uh, an adult seal. But, you know, I guess some of them are going to sink, some of them are going to float. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit uh, 
bit of a, a bit of a pipe dream to think that we're actually going to sell that uh, that meat uh, to, in some sort of market. I don't think that's a reality. Well, for one thing, I think it's you know contaminated meat. You know, I mean, you know, bioaccumulation of contaminants and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I don't think it's going to meet the health standards. I may be wrong on that, but uh, you know, that's a big issue. But uh, you know, I, I think the weight of public opinion is uh, is just going to be overwhelmingly against going up there and murdering a bunch of seals. Yeah. And it's not, yeah. you know, they're not talking small numbers. They're saying, well, the population is 40 to 45,000 in the Salish Sea, and it needs to be reduced by half. Well, 20,000 dead seals. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe an easy, an easy. evidence that that is going to be a benefit. Right. And, and I don't see it. Right. Right. I mean, you know, I guess maybe the easier way to do that is issue some hunting tags so that the, the effort is distributed a bit more and we don't, again, have this, you know, singular vessel with hundreds of carcasses aboard uh, for the TV cameras to see. I mean, it's one thing if you go out and pop a half a dozen seals and, and uh, come up on a private boat launch somewhere, it's going to sort of uh, uh, average out that impact, I suppose. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I, I'm on record as saying, look, I, you know, I am not against a pinniped harvest. What I want to see is a very carefully designed, administered, and evaluated program so that we learn something from this. Not just some random sort of, well, you know, we're going out today and we're going to blast anything we see and we recover some, that's great if we don't, too bad, you know. No, no, no. It, it's got to be a very carefully designed and administered program and then, okay, you know, it may have some hope of if you can apply the conservation argument strongly enough, then maybe it has a chance of flying. Sure, sure. So another issue which seems to be gaining some traction, um, and the Haidas recently uh, put, a, put on a news release uh, pertaining to their views on sport fishing uh, as playing with one's food, um, you know, and, and this Haidas proposed code of conduct uh, seems to be based on a premise that they practice sustainable fishing for thousands of years. Um, you know, and it's like, you know, may I draw your attention, gentlemen, to the fact that it's 2021 and what's happened thousands of years ago today is completely irrelevant. And, you know, along those same veins, your commercial harvest has had to adhere to selective fishing. Uh, and by the way, thousands of years ago, you didn't have a 40-foot, uh, you know, diesel-powered saner. So I just don't understand how this hypo hypocrisy is, is uh, tolerated by anyone. Well, we're on the same page. You know, I, I you know, it just, it boggles my mind that, uh, that, you know, the real agenda here isn't being exposed. And, and that's the whole business. They just don't want the commercial recreational fishing lodges in their territory. I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that happened up there last year that, you know, it's on YouTube, you know, it, it demonstrates clearly what the agenda was, you know, the harassment that's going on and all that kind of stuff, you know, and they're, they're trying to claim that, well, you know, it's the COVID thing that uh, we, we can't have these people importing this dreaded disease to the Haida Gwaii and all this kind of stuff. Well, shit, the only cases of COVID that showed up were from Haida's that went to the mainland and came back, you know? So, well, so. yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's we're, we're getting into this whole, you know, what, what I call apartheid in Canada. I mean, we're, we're, we're racially segmenting our society. And, uh, you know, like my young niece at school, they have, you know, instead of saying the Lord's Prayer to begin the day, they thank the whatever native 
uh, tribe that formerly occupied the ground for, you know, blah, 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 permission for being here. I mean, it's, it, it's this revisionist uh, time that we're finding ourselves in is very odd to me. And, and you know, the, I can't remember a time in history when the Italians paid reparations to the Germans for what the Romans did to the Teutons. I mean, it's, you know, where, where does it end? I mean, this was a, something that happened hundreds of years ago. And yes, you know, by today's standard, it was a violent and horrible practice. Uh, but, you know, the, the process of the conquest is part of human history. It's part of the human experiment. It's part of, you know, everything that's, that's transpired on this planet. And, and I think the, the most empowering thing that we can do for the, the First Nations across Canada is to hand them all a Canadian passport, abolish the Indian Act, and now you're equal. Well, you know, it's, what madness is there in, uh, you know, there's 200, slightly more than 200, I think, individual First Nations in British Columbia. They're recognized as legal entities. Now, those are governments. That's the third level of government. So there's 45 of those legal entity First Nations governments on the Fraser-Thompson-Steelhead Migration Corridor. 45 of them. Okay. How in the world do we deal with 45 additional governments just on that system alone you know and in the behind closed doors you know private sessions government to government that don't in include any of us now if you want to burn bridges that's a good way of doing it you know we got to build bridges not burn bridges we got to be all be in the same room at the same time sort of you know trying to deal with whatever resource issue it might be, whether it's fish or seals or trees or minerals, I don't know. But, you know, this business of having all these separate governments meeting one off with, with the other two governments, you know, and to the exclusion of the other, what is it, 3.8% of British Columbia's population is quote unquote First Nations, legally defined under the Indian Act, 3.8%, you know, that the, other, the rest of them are, are Inuit and Métis and that sort of thing, right? Well, they don't qualify under the Indian Act as First Nations. They don't have legal status in British Columbia like all those other ones do. So 3.8% of the population that is basically holding us ransom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's not correct. And, and, you know, I think as the, the First Nations need to, I mean, on number one, they're gaming the system. There's no question of that. And they also need to question what the motive of these governments are. Um, and in my mind, and we, and we certainly saw it with uh, Trudeau's first term, where he pandered to the natives, promised them the world, and delivered them nothing. And you know, I know a number of uh, First Nations leaders that are incensed by his behavior. Um, and really, you know, what has he delivered? A lot of hyperbole and, and discussion. Um, and it's almost like they continue to dangle this carrot in front of them with the hopes that they're garnering votes. And yeah, I mean, even in BC, 3.8% of the population potentially is enough to swing an election one way or another. And I think uh, within Canada, the First Nation population is around 8%. That's a pretty big voting block. If you can sway and promise them, you know, whatever carrots you're going to throw at them uh, and garner their votes. Well, you know, like, you know, my take on the big picture across the country is that, uh, the power base for federal governments is always Ontario and Quebec. Okay. For sure. And, you know, and the, the populations in those two provinces tend to be clustered along the Canada US border, you know, so they're, they're absolutely unattached from the Pacific and fish. 
Okay, so the business of you know the federal government, you know, pandering to the uh, to the masses out there who have bought the business of you know residential schools and reconciliation, hook, line, and sinker, you know. That is where their power base lies now. They keep, you know, how many more apologies do we want to hear from our prime minister at the podium sort of thing, you know, for the, the sins of yesteryear. I mean, we got to get over that, right? Yeah. It just, yeah. you know, this just can't go on forever. But it's worked for them in the sense that, you know, they, they've garnered a whole lot of public sympathy and support and votes by, you know, sort of being seen to try and accommodate the sins of the past, you know, with respect to First Nations. And, you know, fish are the currency of reconciliation on this coast. So do we have any evidence to demonstrate that the First Nations leadership is helping to avoid the declines in these abundance and the, and the potential extirpation of these fisheries, um, which, they, of course, they contend are integral to their past, present, and future culture? I, I mean, you know, it's all the boardroom talk. You know, I mean, <laughs> the... Uh, the, the gap between, you know, the, all the discussions and the record of them and all that sort of thing, you know, that occur between the First Nations leaders of the day and government and media and all that kind of stuff, you know, that, that's one whole universe, basically. What happens on the water? Totally divorced. And is there any kind of line of authority or communication from the boardroom to the fishermen? I submit no. You know, as long as there's... There's no consequence of going out there and doing what you do, whether it's, you know, you're taking a few fish to sell from your neighbor or you're trading them for drugs or, you know, it, you get caught, so what? You know, what's the consequence? At the very, very worst, you know, some federal officer will sort of, you know, notify the band administration that, hey, you got a bad actor out here, you need to deal with him or something like that. That's as bad as it gets, okay? Right. So what's the incentive to change? Well, I mean, if they if they're claiming that they're the stewards of the resource and and you know all the all the uh, acronyms and so forth they use, I just don't see that uh, on the ground. I mean, I don't see them as you know if if they were leaders in in the conservation of these fisheries, I would have some respect for them. But they just seem to be trying to uh, clamor for the last few scraps, regardless of what the consequences are. Well, you know, again, it goes back to the business of gillnets, you know, and. Uh... I mean, if there was any leadership there, they'd be, they'd be telling us that gillnets got to go. Yeah, you know, exactly. that, uh, they got to return to their sort of historic harvesting methods and, you know, selective fisheries and all that kind of stuff, you know. That's not coming from them. You know, that's coming strictly from us, you know, trying to convince them of the, the error of the modern ways, if you will. We, you know, it's on record that DFO officers seized 300 plus gill nets from the lower Fraser this year, so-called illegal nets. They were deployed in times and places when they weren't supposed to be. So they got 300 or more that they actually got their hands on. Well, I don't want anybody trying to tell me that, that there's an army of DFO officers out there dedicated to policing the lower Fraser. You know, that's, that's probably a fraction of what actually goes on out there. So, you know, let's see some evidence that First Nations are dealing with that themselves. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a really critical point that uh, they need to show some leadership here if they really want to have a uh, you know a seat at the table to discuss conservation issues. Yep. Otherwise, they're they're just part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. So it, it seems like our, our, uh, within the realm of fisheries, our institutions and policies have failed all the stakeholders. Is it time for wholesale revision of these institutions and policies? Well, well you know, I think there's a huge body of opinion out there that, uh, that says that DFO has to go. Um, you know, the province doesn't count. There's this, you know, small, non-influential players in the grand scheme of things that, you know, I don't, I don't think it makes much difference what happens with the province. But, you know, there, there needs to be some kind of a wholesale change in how Pacific fisheries and resources are managed. You know, you've got, I mean, for many years now, I think within DFO, you've had three solitudes. You know, you've got research management and enforcement. And it seems like never the twain shall meet. They don't even talk to each other, you know, like, oh, okay. And then you get within, you know, the hell of halls of the DFO main building. What do you got? Well, you know, across the hallway from each other, each other you got the advocates of the fish farming industry and, and the protectors of wild salmon. It was like, how does that work? Right. You know? it does. <laughs> it's pretty simple. You know? So, you know, I agree. There, It seems like there needs to be some basic fundamental overhaul of the way things are being done. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I mean, it's again, that uh, definition of insanity, you keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I mean, we're at that point very clearly. Yep. So, so I guess, you know, Bob, what's kept you motivated all these years in, in your quest to protect and conserve wild steelhead? And, you know, it's, uh, I, I see the bruises on your forehead from smashing your head against the wall. You know, what keeps you going? Yeah, I keep, I keep, you know, I ask myself that probably thrice daily, you know, but, uh, I sort of come to the conclusion that it's all masochism and masochism is an addiction. You know? Well, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, where's that? There's a, an interesting quote that I came across, you know, a, a really short one, but uh, yeah, I don't know if I can find it right now. Just give me a half a second here. Sure, sure. I mean, I, 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 I think I speak on behalf of, of most concerned anglers that we, we honor and appreciate all your work. Um, but, you know, man, it's, it's uh, got to be a tough one to just keep pounding out all this information. Well, yeah, and, you know, here's that one little quote that I think, you know, sort of speaks volumes. It says that the trouble is that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And yeah. once you've seen it, keeping quiet, saying nothing becomes as political an act as speaking out. There's no innocence. Either way, you're accountable. Sure. Uh, that, that's, I don't know, that sort of captures it for me, I think. You know, I, I just, like, I, I just ain't going to sleep if there's something that needs to be said that isn't being said. So, I, I, I you know, I, the white flag going up the pole, yeah, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's good. That's good. So what has to happen immediately here if future generations of Canadians are going to be able to witness the, the splendor of, of what, uh, what we have as these wild salmon and steelhead? Big education. You know, the public just has to be made aware, more aware of the, of the significance to, of salmon and steelhead to the, to the heritage of this province and, and the sorts of values that have drawn so many people to it initially. Um, we can't just sort of erase that page of our, our history and, and move on, in my view. I mean, we got to do what we can to, to conserve and, and sustain what we have left. It's worth it, you know. I, I just, 
you know, the, the, the preservation value, the, uh, you know, the existence value of these resources, I think is enormous. And, uh, you know, as, as Pacific salmon and steelhead go, I think so goes our environment and our, and our culture, you know, we, it's about as simple as that. The, the uh, canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, of all the segments that I've covered uh, specifically on forestry in BC, uh, there's some of the least uh, viewed or least listened to episodes. And I think that there's a, there's a there's a there's a disconnect between what people see, especially let's say the you know large population in the lower mainland when they, they look out at the North Shore Mountains or the the hills in behind Park of Portland and they just see a, an ocean of trees. Well, you know there isn't a hell of a lot of old growth left. It's you know basically carpets of second growth. And um, once you get in the inland a bit more, I mean, the our forests have been denuded to an incredible degree. Uh, you know, a lot of the the most recent information is showing that we have less than one percent of uh, first growth stands in our most productive ecosystems, which obviously are these riparian areas that uh, our salmon and steelhead rely on. And it's interesting, I, I find it very frustrating to try to get this message into people's heads that, hey, you know, just because you see green out there doesn't mean that it's a productive uh, ecosystem in terms of you know, what was once there. And I think it's maybe similar on the fishery side of things where um, people just don't seem to, they think it's going to be a limitless resource. And, you know, some of my younger colleagues, uh, you know, been trying to get them to, to assist me in producing some video documentation of, of what's going on. And it's kind of just falls on deaf ears They're you know, they're, they're more interested to go out and try to catch some fish than doing a little bit of work, uh, off the river to preserve that ability for the yeah. long term. Sustaining that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's frustrating. So I'm just, just not sure, you know, how to, you know, just kind of, I guess just like yourself, and just kind of kind of keep speaking the message and hopefully that, uh, you know, a few people take it up and um, spread the word. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, I suppose that uh, I look around at, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, for a really small subsample, if you will, you know, the, uh, the steelhead advocacy groups, you know, and you could say, okay, well, let's talk about, you know, the Steelhead Society and the, you know, elements of the BC Wildlife Federation, the Federation of Fly Fishermen, those sorts of groups. You know, you look at the demographics, it's my age group. Yeah. That's it, you know, and, and every year, you know, a few more falling off the perch. You know, they're sure. not being replaced. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the, any, any new blood that does come along now, um, they're, they're just, you know, the conservation of the resource and the habitat from whence it came is uh, is nowhere near as important an issue as it was to their predecessors. For sure. Well, and I think, like you said earlier, you know, you had that uh, comment from the gentleman in the fishing retail business uh, talking about transitioning from steelheading to stillwater. And I think you know, same thing. If you're you're a young fellow and you're out in the water, and you know, steelheading is. Uh, sometimes uh, tough as it is and, and with uh, dr dramatically limited stocks. I mean, if you, you know, you spend five or six outings and, and don't bump into anything, you're going to get pretty discouraged. And uh, you know, I think it's, the, the, unfortunately, people are shifting away from, from that resource uh, because it is so, uh, so limited now. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, and, you know, going back to what you said earlier about, well, you know, how about, a, you know, a, barbless fly on the Thompson River, something like that, you know, well, uh, you know, a, a fishing closure does no one any benefit, okay? And, and 
Banker Island is replete with those examples. You know, you close it, people grumble and complain and all that for a little bit of time, and then they go away and they never come back. Right. Yeah. You know, we got a whole bunch of empty rivers on this island with no advocates. Right. You know, it's yeah. the Brian Niska claim that, well, you know, a river with no traffic is a river without friends, that sort of thing. So, yeah, no, it, uh, we've got to find ways of, of main, maintaining at least some opportunity out there. I'd be perfectly happy to go out and, and throw a barbless fly or, a, a, you know, cut the bend off of off a hook on a fly and on the Englishman River. Perfectly happy to do that. Sure, sure. And the, the opportunity to get a grab, you'll be startled and uh, hey, you'll have a smile on your face for a week. Yeah, it gives me an excuse to take my dog for a walk to a little bit different place than normal sort of thing, you know? Sure. I like sure. to listen to the river. I like to, to see the river and get some sense of, you know, well, how's it doing out there, you know? And, yeah. That's right. Opportunity That's right. denied. That's right. That's right. So uh, how is that uh, new book on the Thompson coming along? Well, it's, uh, you know, the more you dig, the, the, I don't know, the more information you feel obligated to try and turn over. But, uh, you know, I, I'm getting there. It's, uh, it's been a struggle to try and, try and patch together the First Nations history. You know, there are so many sources of information, oftentimes conflicting. You know, I, I just, you know, a flat spot on my forehead is pretty big. <laughs> but I, I feel obligated to try and sort of, you know, set the stage a little bit by having a, you know, a reasonable overview and, and, you know, not a lot of detail, but, you know, at least accurate. So sure. that, uh, you know, you can sort of set the stage for today, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm also doing my best to tease out some, you know, some sort of historic information from the, the oldest anglers that are still with us that have experience on the Thompson. And, you know, that's a, it's really unfortunate. We're losing some of those guys. Sure. Sure. You know, so do we have an anticipated yeah, I, I, you know, sometime this calendar year, I hope to have a product. Let's put it that way. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. That's something for us all to look forward to. Another horror story by Bob Hooten. Well, it, you know, it's, it, <laughs> it's a snapshot that I think is worth having. That's all. I agree. You know, they, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. As they like, you know, they can put a skull and crossbones behind my name. I, this, you know, a factual account, where we were, where we are, how we got here. You can do that. Do with that as you may, public. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an unfortunate tale that you're telling. I mean, you're not, uh, don't, don't shoot the messenger, right? Well, yeah. And, and uh, I, you know, I've said from the get-go that, uh, you know, the words like unique, overworked you know if you want to talk about uh, thompson steelhead is unique uh they are but the word doesn't do the fish justice and that's what i want to try and capture a little bit because uh this is a one-of-a-kind resource that is uh that is fast disappearing and uh I, I want to try to do the best i can to to tell that story you know this isn't just another bunch of steelhead and old big deal sort of thing no 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 this was different. Sure. And, and, you know, there's some people around still with us that can put into words how different they were and, you know, what drew them to the Thompson and that sort of thing, you know, and that, that's part of the story as well. I want to try and, try and capture some of that, you know, once again, you know, people are free to do with it as they may. If they don't like it, write your own book. <laughs>
For sure, for sure. So, um, Bob, if people want to uh, learn a bit more about you or, or uh, grab some of your books, uh, I guess the best place to direct them is to uh, steelheadvoices.com? Yeah, that, that'll work. Okay, okay, fantastic. Well, well, sir, it's been a pleasure again. Um, you know, I, I wish I wish we had better news to share, and uh, you know, hopefully one day maybe we'll get on here with uh, with uh, news of that nature. Well, you you know, you're doing your best to to get there, and I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Well, you have yourself a great day, and um, we'll uh, we'll we'll connect again in the future. Okay. Thanks again, Michael. Cheers. Have a great day, sir. Yeah, you too. Bye bye.